3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other First Nations Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Good morning. Good morning. How are we this morning? It's a bit of a cold one. <laughs> it is this morning, so it's going to be 18 degrees, but it's about you know eight out there at the moment. Yes. Yeah, it was really it was very very cold, but I think it will be quite warm later in the afternoon. But I, was, I did see I did check the forecast. So it was a bit. And it's going to be quite windy as well, so mm. we shall see. Yes, the 9th of uh, August. Yeah, just ticking along nicely at the moment, Claudia, aren't we, yeah. in, t- in terms of the days? Next thing you know, we'll be uh, in September and uh, hopefully we're in shorts very soon. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Uh, I really hope to be in shorts because I can't wait for the summer. <laughs> but yeah, oh my God, it's August. It's been four months, in, uh, four months left till this twenty end of 2023. Time flies. Don't say that, Grace. Just don't say that. I don't think listeners need to be worrying about uh, <laughs> Definitely the end of the year yet. <laughs> Some people the- have just had their Christmas in July, <laughs> yeah, so, so uh, let, let's not uh-huh. rush it too, too quickly. <laughs> now, we've got a busy show this morning um, and a lot of variety as well. We're going to be playing some tracks this morning from the second volume of Music for Iran, which is a compilation raising money and awareness for political prisoners in Iran during the ongoing revolution for women's liberation and the end to gender apartheid. So these uh, songs have come especially um, from a group in the UK, actually, and they've previously been unreleased. They're demos, covers, remixes, a whole range of uh, creative uh, work. And, yeah, so we'll be peppering the show with those this morning, so uh, look out for those those tracks as we play them and uh, then we've got a range of guests this morning grace you're speaking with someone from the union do you want to tell us about that yeah so i'll be speaking to the australian council trade unions assistant secretary joseph mitchell discussing the upcoming price gorging inquiry which is a chance to see if big businesses are artificially inflating their prices and taking advantage of the cost of living crisis so yeah, we're going to be looking into that interesting stuff today. And then we'll be running into uh, a conversation with Professor Igarashi from uh, Vanderbilt University in Tennessee. He'll be joining us on the line to talk about cultural memory and war memory in Japan. And of course, today is the 78th anniversary of the bombing of Nagasaki, um, which brings up a range of... Uh, Memories and significance for uh, for many things in this this context of um, you know fragility across the globe 
and the the continued uh, outrage with the uh, AUKUS agreement and nuclear-powered submarines in Australia. Um, but particularly, he will be talking about the Japanese experience and memory of war, which is also timely with Oppenheimer being released. Definitely. And we'll also be uh, having a listen to a chat um, with uh, AFCA Deputy Chief Ombudsman Dr June Smith. Uh, and then later in the show, I will be uh, just chatting with the Australian Federation of the Deccan Association volunteer Khalid Muhammad to discuss uh, the unfortunate scenes which are happening in India at the moment, uh, the the violence which is occurring between uh, both Hindu and Muslim populations. We'll be discussing that and what their group are doing to uh, help those in need in India, Grace. Interesting, interesting. Well... Shall we get to headlines? Yes, we should do, Grace. We've got some, uh, I've got some happy news to start us off this morning. Uh, first up is the World Cup. Uh, last night, Australia have found out their opponents for the quarterfinal. They will play France uh, in the Women's World Cup on Saturday in Brisbane after France defeated Morocco four goals to nil in Adelaide last night, while Colombia uh, defeated Jamaica one goal to nil in Melbourne in front of 27,000 fans. Uh, they will face England in the other quarterfinal on Saturday night as well. So uh, some big clashes there, uh, Grace, to look forward to. Yeah, and Labour has decided to further harden its stance against Israel in an objection to Israelis' settlements in West Bank, which is Palestinian territory occupied by Israel. Foreign Minister Penny Wong says the government will continue to use the term occupied Palestinian territories. They will also be able to officially refer to Israel's occupation of the territory as illegal. The decision comes after Australia along with Germany, Italy, France, England and the United States condemned the Israeli government's decision to build 10,000 settlement units in the West Bank back in February. According to Wong, the Australian government's change in language will be consistent with the UN, England, not the UN, apologies, the United States, the UN, England, New Zealand and Europe. Parents and doctors from the Northern Territory are demanding the government to stop fracking in the Beetaloo Basin and to stop the $1.5 million middle arm project, which has been claimed to be a which has been claimed to be environmentally sustainable, despite having links to fossil fuel developments. The delegation of parents and health officials have travelled to Canberra to protest the impacts of green of greenhouse gas developments on the climate saying that the Northern Territory is on the front of the climate crisis. They were also joined by the Indigenous traditional owners protesting the government's support for the Santos gas project on the Tiwi Islands. Also supporting the movement were Teals and independents such as Kuyong's Monique Ryan and Independent Senator David Pocock, who urged protesters to put pressure on the politicians who were voting to expand the fossil fuel industry. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese defended the Middle Arm Project by saying it will go ahead as it will develop clean energy industries to get to net zero, despite having associations with fossil fuels. And lastly, Western Australia was scrapped a new law for protecting Aboriginal heritage sites due to opposition from landowners and farmers. The law in question is the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act, which was put into action on the 1st of July in order to prevent repeating the destruction of Indigenous heritage sites, such as the 46,000-year-old Jukan Gorge rock shelter that was demolished by mining firm Rio Tinto. 
Despite regarding the destruction of the Jukan Gorge as a tragedy, Western Australia's Premier Roger Cook said that the legislation had gone too far by introducing complicated regulations and ultimately placing the burden on everyday property owners. The new Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act will be overturned to its previous version in 1972. The traditional owners of Jukan Gorge, the Putu Kunti Kurama and the Pinikura PKKP Aboriginal Corporation, were informed of the decision on a five-minute phone call and were devastated by the change. So that's all our headlines for this morning. We're going to go into one of the interesting interesting songs Claudia has mentioned uh, as the beginning just now. So uh, this song is, there are many options to songs and we're just going to play one of them. So one of them now it's called Women Light Fire by Su Ling.
3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. That song that you heard before, that was by Su Ling called Women Life Fire. So just very interesting, pleasing song for an early morning. So we know that Australia is still facing a high cost, high of, high cost of living, which and yet we see big companies with fat profits shooting up to billions of dollars. So joining me this morning is... Australian Council Trades Union is Assistant Secretary Joseph Mitchell as we discussed our coming price-gorging inquiry to see if big businesses are artificially inflating their prices and taking advantage of the cost-of-living crisis. Good morning, Joseph. Good morning. Thanks for having me. No problem. So can we first just get to understand before we go into the inquiry what is going on with the cost-of-living crisis? Well, we know yeah. that uh, in the last year we've seen inflation increase enormously and that means that the costs of the, the groceries you buy, the, the petrol you buy, your energy bills, your phone bills, um, anything that you're trying to trying to get access to has gone up significantly and workers across Australia are telling us that they're really struggling to make their pay stretch over the essentials that they need. Um, and we think that this is, uh, is out of control and we think that some companies are taking us for a ride here. Um, mm. Yep, and so because of that, what what is this price gorging inquiry? Who is hosting it? And just can you explain what what is it about, basically? So we're really excited to have uh, Professor Alan Fells. Um, mm-hmm. Professor Alan Fells is uh, a former ACCC chair, so he headed up the Consumer Watchdog. Uh, a preeminent economist and a preeminent Australian, um, and he's agreed to chair uh, this inquiry into price gouging and unfair pricing practices, uh, which will examine uh, the behaviour of companies over the last uh, 12 months in this inflationary episode, uh, what companies have been doing with setting their prices, and if they've been either exploiting their market position putting pressure on their own supply chains, putting pressure on their own staff to increase their margins and increase their profits. Um, We know that there's a lot of uh, inflation in the economy at the moment and some businesses have had to increase their prices generally, but we know that some businesses which which are in a position of power are increasing their prices dramatically in a way that isn't necessary and is actually driving inflation. Uh, And this inquiry, uh, chaired by Alan Fells with his expertise, be a really good opportunity for us to examine the causes of price gouging, yep. but also um, really delve into what are the effects on working people and how are working people going through this crisis. Mm, I see. And is is it possible if you could just share some of the examples of the profits made by the big companies so the listeners can understand how dire this is? So we've seen um, since um, the since. Uh, reopening from coronavirus, we've seen profits explode for some of our largest businesses. Mm. An enormous turnaround in businesses with limited competition like Qantas, 
big profits from the big four banks uh, and the big retailers are absolutely making a killing at the moment. Uh, and what we're, what we're not seeing uh, is this sort of inflationary pressure bite them. Uh, their profits are going up, their prices are going up, uh, their workers' wages are stagnating and still below inflation. Uh, and the uh, the outcome is that working people are struggling really hard. Mm, I see. I think I think with this inquiry, I was also just wondering. So obviously, we obviously it's going to be very helpful in the sense that it's really going to let people understand how the cost and everything how and how by giving receipts that will basically make, make let people know that oh my god it's everything so much so there's so many things it's so expensive and so yet and it's just not a good thing in that sense how how will this inquiry be helpful for people to really predict uh to to, to basically be predict, predict that or because because of all these expensive things coming up uh, yeah, the we, prices we, need to go down well i think that there are going to be two parts to this there's mm. um you know in running this inquiry we want to hear from from experts in their field and we want to hear from from people who've had a really big think about um price gouging and market market power mm. but we really want to hear from ordinary people because at the end of the day working people know when things are going up in a way which is just unsustainable or which is taking us for a ride um you, you look at the price of things like dog food going up enormously, it's really hard to figure out why that is. And you look at things like the price of groceries in regional Australia, the uh, the increase in the cost of telecommunications, all of these uh, increases need to be reported and we need to figure out from from people's perspective mm. what are the ones that are really hurting and how, how are those prices going up and why are they going up in such a way? Uh, it might not be the headline fee. It might be the sub fees that you get when you when you when you book your your loved one into care. It might be um, the overcharges that you get when you um, when you run down to the bottom of the bank bank balance. Mm. Uh, all of these things are ways in which companies can fatten their profits uh, and need to be examined because uh, there are, there's a lot of companies out there which are using and abusing the general inflationary crisis I see. But, but do you think like it was done, it was something done on purpose for companies because obviously a lot of big companies, they don't care whether cost of living affects them or not because as long as they're getting profits, that's all that matters. But do you think it was on purpose or this was, or was just like, because obviously when the Ukraine and Russia war happened, all all prices increased and it was, I guess it was just unavoidable because of the situation at hand. So do we, can we know that this was this was something that was done on purpose or it's just unavoidable? I think that um, I think that there are some price increases which have been unavoidable. Mm. And you know, we're not going to say that the war in Ukraine isn't real, that uh, the supply chain blockages in COVID weren't real. Yeah. And you would have seen um, you would have seen constraints on businesses then mm. uh, and adjusting to the new market conditions. But the purpose here is there are definitely price increases out there which are using a cover of a general inflationary episode mm. to increase prices just to make an extra buck, where companies don't have to do it, but they're abusing their market position to do so. And that's really the goal of this inquiry, which will be to figure out where those uh, gouging episodes are occurring, where unfair pricing is occurring, mm. 
mm. um, and going into that. A really good example is just the difference in prices between people in regional, regional or remote communities and the rest of Australia. Uh, you see enormous differences in the prices of things down to ten, canned, canned vegetables mm. and tinned fruit, uh, which isn't justified, other than the fact that there might be only one or two groceries within the next 100 kilometres. And that's a really that's a really important thing to look at, which is are some businesses, especially those big ones, are some businesses really exploiting their situation in the market? Mm, that That's very interesting. I can definitely uh, relate a lot to being very well aware of the price got the the insane prices in groceries because I get my groceries a lot. And I remember when I used to buy a I, 700 grams of mushrooms it used to cost me only six dollars but then now it has showed up to like seven or 650 and even just like 50 cents more it was a very big difference in my opinion because we're still getting the same amount of mushrooms but then the price increased a lot so it's just it's just really weird and even like with tomatoes and garlic i, I saw garlic was like 27 dollars per kg so it's just insane so I think definitely this inquiry will be very helpful for our listeners out there. Uh, Joseph, we're actually running, unfortunately running a bit out of time. So can we just get you lastly to just talk about how can listeners participate in this inquiry? So uh, thanks so much. We uh, have, we'll have public submissions open. Uh, if you can go to pricegougingenquiry.actu.org.au, you can have a look at the website, the terms of reference and make a submission if you would like. Uh, and through the inquiry, we'll be holding public hearings across Australia, which will allow workers and regular people to tell their story about price gouging uh, and uh, make their voice heard here. Uh, it's a really important opportunity, and we really want as much participation from every kind, every part of Australia as possible. Mm, I see. And just to confirm, because I remember you mentioned about receipts, uh, is that because is is that meant to be like the physical ones, or just e-receipts are fine? Uh, either way, just it's it's really about. The, uh, the way in which you want to document it as a worker. Mm. So taking a picture of your receipt, submitting one, uh, taking a picture of a price that you've paid that you feel is unfair or you feel is taking workers for a ride. Um, that's all evidence that we need to see. Mm, interesting. So that's great to have that variation of uh, evidence for documents to, to be documented. All right, Joseph, thank you so much for coming on our show. Thanks so much for your time. Take Th- care. Take care. Cheers. And that was the Australian Council Trades Union's Assistant Secretary, Joseph Mitchell, where we discussed about their upcoming price gorging inquiry to see if the big businesses are artificially inflating their prices and taking advantage of the cost of living crisis. So next up, we're going to be having a very interesting segment from Claudia, is that correct? Yeah, we'll be speaking with uh, Professor Igarashi from uh, Vanderbilt University about uh, war memory in Japan. So stay tuned and uh, we'll be back after this next track to speak with him. Awesome. And this will be a very interesting song called Women Life by Queasy Pieces.
when he says that he's lost. When he says that he's waiting. science week again and that can only mean one thing yes it's the lost in science trivia night monday the 14th of august 7 p.m at the carrying bush hotel in abbotsford come early for dinner bring a team win prizes show off your brains and raise money for science on the radio send an email to book your table to lost at gmail.com that's l-o-s-t-i-n-s-c-i at gmail.com 
and we will sort you out for tickets. Lost in Science Trivia Night, Monday the 14th of August. Remember to tune in each Thursday at 8.30am for all your sciencey goodness. Cheryl and Troy have been married for more than 25 years. They spent 10 of those years living on the streets of Melbourne addicted to heroin. In a groundbreaking collaboration, photographer and writer Ali MC conveys the couple's compelling narrative in an audio-visual installation and photographic audiobook. H, A Love Story launches at Richmond Library on Wednesday, August 9 at 6.30pm. Entry is free and all are welcome. H, A Love Story a project about love, heroin and homelessness on the streets of Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Tussock is an oxygen weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at footnote bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. The song you heard just now was called Women Life by Queasy Pieces. Now to Claudia. Well, today marks the 78th anniversary of the bombing of the Japanese city of Nagasaki, an event which signalled Japan's defeat in World War II and prompted its unconditional surrender. What followed in Japan was a national reckoning with loss as people grappled with what had happened and made sense of their place in a new era. So how did Japan deal with the trauma of war and what happened to the tomb of experiences and memories held by Japanese people? Is war something to be remembered or forgotten? Here to speak about the way memories of war have been suppressed and expressed in post-war Japan and the tension between the desire to remember and the desire to forget is Professor Igarashi, a specialist in modern Japanese cultural studies and war memory. 
Professor Igarashi has authored two books, Bodies of Memory, Narratives of War in Postwar Japanese Culture, 1945-1970, to and Homecomings, The Belated Return of Japan's Lost Soldiers. He joins us now from Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome, Professor Igarashi. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you. Can we ask you just to speak up a little bit so our listeners can catch every word? Thank you. Uh, Would you mind just to start off by introducing yourself and letting our listeners know about your work and research? Well, thank you uh, for the invitation. Um, I was born and raised in Japan. I was there till age 26. And I, I started graduate school in the United States ever since I've been in this country in the United States. So I've been teaching at Vanderbilt for the past 30 years. And so that's where I am. And I have worked on Japan's war memories, especially their relations to Japan's popular culture. Mm. So it'd be good to start off by just clarifying what we mean when we talk about war memory. Are we talking about the collective memory of the nation or individual memories, or are both of these things aligned? Um, all of the above, and also compositions changed. Uh, imagine right after the war, uh, a lot of people have visceral memories, images of the war, but, uh, but the time passed. You know, people die, people forget, people, you know, have other things to do in their lives. And these memories are gradually replaced by different things, like media memories. Media gained much more presence in people's mind and power. And what we have now is perhaps more media heavy than personal memory heavy. But still, we have a mixture of things, mixture of memories. Mm. So we'll come to the impact and power of media in a moment. But I wondered um, if you could share with our listeners um, the sort of early decades following the war and the way in which the war was remembered then. Uh, I believe there's a couple of different theories. Um, what I like to emphasize is the sort of uh, what we don't really see, which is the um, the ways in which Japan and the United States created covenants between the two nations. So the reality is this, bottom line is this, Japan and the United States used to be the two of the most hated enemies, but within a matter of a few months, a few years, perhaps, they became the closest allies, as if, you know, the circling, the squaring the circle. And they came up with this square, all right, in the possible period, but there are many parts, many things that did not fit into this circle. And that's the interesting part about Japan's war memories as well as United States war memories. Can you tell us a bit more about that interesting part? Um, so, for example, um, the Oppenheimer is very popular in the United States. I think there's been discussion as to why it's not released in Japan. But and there is a strong interest, at least in the media, in this film because it's, it's talking about the father of nuclear weapon and the the, um, the uh, atomic bomb, usage of atomic development and the usage of atomic bomb. And uh, the, my discussion, my thesis is that the atomic bomb became sort of a centerpiece in creating a narrative 
that made it possible for the two nations to make into the post-war period. So the common knowledge, the common sort of a narrative, common perception in Japan, if you ask people, many people say a U.S. United States still think that use of the bomb was justifiable. That's egregious. That's outrageous. Americans are still so barbaric that they still believe in that. That, that. I think I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I think that's a perception still among Japanese people. But let's go back, that goes back to the, um, the, the ways in which two nations made transitions. Um, in a way, there's still a need to believe that sort of a, the people like to hang on to the memories of the fight, memories of the war. Yes, Japan made it into sort of a, Japan and US is now cozy embrace each other, but somewhere in their mind, they would like to believe that they were once or still perhaps in conflict some sense and nuclear weapon can give them that comfort in some ways. On the other hand, in the United States, if you ask many people in the United States, many, many people will say, Japanese must hate us because we dropped the bombs. Therefore, therefore they feel they have to justify the use of bomb. Um, so two sides are sort of a playing different parts, but in the end, they're dancing around nicely around the images of that nuclear weapon, the ways in which it is used, the ways in which it explains the end of the war. And when the war ended, as you said, these two countries who had been enemies had to come yeah. together. Uh, the US occupied Japan and they had to find a way, I suppose, to coexist. What, were the, what was the role of the Japanese government and policy at that time um, in, in terms of trying to, to make that work? Um, to present somewhat simplified picture, the, you know, one of the, the big issues is did the bomb end the war? And that question is always hanging over many people's minds, thinking about war memories, especially memories of atomic bomb. And in Japan, many people say, no, that's not the case. In the United States, still, majority of people believe that's the case. But that idea itself is possible creation. Uh, when you go into the record of the discussions in the inner circle of United States officials, uh, there's no discussion as to we are using this to save, save lives. That discussion was only came along in possible period, along with the idea that somehow bomb saved the lives, bomb ended the war. Yes, bomb was an impressive weapon, but it was just a huge weapon by itself. It has to be interpreted. And that interpretation culture meaning was provided by Japanese government, especially by emperor. Basically, Japanese government created this myth that emperor stood up despite his pledge to be apolitical, and despite the danger that he's faced, he stood up for the sake of Japanese people and civilization to accept the Possum Declaration, even if he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. So Japanese government created this myth narrative that this great person sacrificed himself and therefore provided the meaning to the atomic bomb. And that conveniently fit into US's images of savior. 
they are now going into Japan to save Japanese lives. And so Japanese government around the person of the emperor created this narrative. And U.S. enthusiastically, U.S. government, U.S. officials enthusiastically accepted this narrative. And is that your view as well? I believe that you have a different view on this. Uh, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, the, when I talk about the, the bomb's usage, the question of did the bomb and the wall to my students in the United States, I point out different things. For example, what do you think about the fact that the 110,000 soldiers sacrificed their lives? Almost a, more than a quarter, quarter million soldiers were injured in the fight no, during three and a half years. Do you think the uh, these lives, lost lives, injured soldiers, they don't matter in the process of the war? Um, then they'll start thinking about the pro- war as a process, not that moment. Don't somehow that those numbers help help them to un- sort of a unhinged from that moment, August six, August ninth of the bombs being used, and then start thinking about the processes to get to that point rather than that moment. So the mo- emphasizing the moment draws your mind to something that was finishing and finishing as far can as be ra- rationalized yeah, as events, good in that way, whereas... Just the huge events and the great man, right? The Truman, in this, according to this narrative, uh, Truman used the bomb to save lives. Um, in that narrative, you know, complex bureaucratic system just disappears. Bureaucratic system that produced, decided to use the bomb in which Truman was part of, but it's just re- replaced by Truman's great personality. In mm-hmm. the same way, the process of the fighting the war, coming to the decision to accept the Boston Declaration was represented by solely by emperor's so-called divine decision. So the, the history becomes moment, the history becomes the interactions of great minds. And I don't think that's now, the very productive way of looking at history. The same way I think about memories. Uh, memory, I don't think is a status, a quiet state, like a solid thing to be, you know, harnessed. But I think the memory itself is changing, a transitional, always dynamic. And we have to live with it. I'm not saying that the content of memory changes, but the emotional content and what's emphasized, what's forgotten in memory always changes. So it's seven decades since the bomb was dropped and the war ended. Can you talk about how that memory has changed over that period? And you talked about generational differences and current events and so forth. Are there, are there clear patterns in the way the memory has uh, shifted? Um. My cases come from the, the no, I'm, I'm going to talk about the Japanese examples, but the, there's a sense that everybody knows that people are dying, people are passing, people are sort of exiting from the theater of history, meaning that the people with people who experienced the war firsthand are disappearing fast. And that creates more the sense of urgency that somehow I'm talking about the media representations. People in the media tend to sort of cling on to this idea that we have to put, protect what we have. 
Otherwise, this war, war experiences will be forgotten. But that sort of a defensive attitude itself is a detriment, I think, to thinking about war as living memories. War memories are something that are affecting our, our, our lives today. So um, to answer your question, um, I think the war memories are still affecting our lives in the United States and Japan, but the media is doing something, um, I don't know, that media representation tend to be more uh, leaning toward freezing it, leaning towards sort of preserving it as they see it. Can you t- give us some examples of sort of popular culture or films that speak to that? Um, perhaps not popular culture, but I s- often see the uh, in Japanese media, especially Japanese new- newspapers and television, this term fukasuru, which means corrode. And the term often comes up as fukasaseruna, don't let it corrode. And uh, this phrase is often used in relation to war memories. And this became a sort of a rallying cry that somehow, as long as we keep the memories in our mind as is, as it is, then we are passing these memories to next generations. And that's very strong. That voice, that kind of sort of tendency is very strongly seen in Japanese media. And not, no, not just media, but in Japanese society at large. And Japan has, you know, became a pacifist state and has yes. a really strong anti-nuclear lobby. Um, is that still the, the situation? There's been sort of shifts in the last, I suppose, decade and, you know, with Abe's uh, move to uh, allow a little bit more flexibility, shall we call it, in terms of the right. role of their right. self-defence? Uh... Yeah, um, um, all in all, I think Japan is still a pacifist, anti-nuke uh, nation. For example, if, if the administration, LDP administration, would claim that they're going to develop their own, Japan's own nuclear weapon, they will lose power immediately. People will just turn their back to that administration. People still have a strong anti-nuke feelings. That said, we have to recognize this anti-nuke feeling is under the protection of U.S. nuclear umbrella. Post-war Japan's peace was maintained by the fact that Japan is built into U.S. hegemonic structure in Pacific. So it's a contradiction, huge contradiction, but this is precisely a contradiction that we have to face. And this is a part of the memory, right? Uh, some parts of memories fit into this, this, you know, find a place in this contradiction, but other memories, memory pieces would not fit into. And what's, what we need to think about is how they, affect, continue to affect our thinking about this. But right now, the structure is in such, so powerful, the post-war political structure um, built under Pax Americana is so strong that what doesn't fit is kept outside of this umbrella for so long, seven, seven decades. That's fascinating. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion in Australia about uh, our relationship with the US and its influence, mm-hmm. particularly in defence and security, 
Um, so these are, yeah, this is a, an interesting um, framework for Australians, I suppose, to also think about how we fit into the uh, American uh, picture of uh, global security. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. We really appreciate your time. And um, it will be interesting to see uh, if Oppenheimer does get released in Japan and, yeah, what the reaction is and what discussions come out of that. But uh, we'll have to watch that space. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. And that was Professor Igarashi from Vanderbilt University Nashville, Tennessee, speaking about war memories in Japan. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast and over to Grace. Yeah, that was a very interesting conversation that Claudia really dwell, dives into the, com the, the comparison and discussion of Oppenheimer, which is a very big movie at the moment, which I was also planning to go and watch. But I guess just really understanding about the whole situation with Japan is very important to take into consideration. We're now going to be out diving to a conversation with Australian Financial Complaints Authority Deputy Chief Ombudsman, Doc, uh, Authority's Deputy Chief Ombudsman, Dr. June Smith. He basically discussed the financial complaints received this year, which was taken to them, and the complications and implications of buy now play, pay later and the delay in insurance claims it's a very big jump of a topic from Claudia's segment just now but it's also a very important topic to discuss because we need to understand about when it comes to delays in insurance claims and buy now pay later where these problems arise and how can we deal with it so yeah. joining me this morning is June Smith joining me this morning is Dr. June Smith hi Dr. June how are you good morning Grace it's great to be with you that's lovely. Lovely to have you here this morning. So, Dr. June, we know that in regards to the complaints received uh, for AFCA, there were over 96,000 complaints lodged in the past 12 months. So can we get to know a bit how dire has it been compared to the past results in the previous years? Yes, Grace. Well, the Australian Financial Complaints Authority provides a free dispute resolution service for all Australian consumers and the financial services sector. Mm. And... We have had a record number of complaints of 96,000, as you've said, um, in one year alone. And for us, that was a significant increase, over $254 million in compensation and refunds returned to consumers, a 34% increase in the number of complaints we received from the year before. So that scale of increase is unprecedented for us in the nearly five years we've been operating and almost double the number of complaints that the three schemes who preceded us would have recorded together in their final year of operation in 2017-18. So it's a disappointing number mm. and we're deeply concerned by the volume of complaints we've received. Financial firms need to do a better job of handling complaints themselves and preventing concerns in the first place from their customers, uh, but a record number of complaints and 254 million returned to consumers. 
Wow, that that is a very very big increase and a very big number. That's very concerning, and concerning mm, Grace as well because it's mm, not fair yeah. on consumers um, to have these complaints have to be escalated to us, and it's really not good for business when they don't address complaints early and resolve matters with their customers. That is true, and what. Were some of the major like financial stresses that people were complaining about, like one of the big, big things that people were basically concerned? Well, Grace, we identified three key things coming from the complaints that we've seen. We all know that there's growing financial stress in the community because of cost of living increases. Mm. And we have all seen, and many of us have experienced escalating scams activity. And we no, and unfortunately, some of us and many Australians have experienced delays in the handling of claims by insurance companies. And unfortunately, we're disappointed to say that all three have increased this year. A 27% increase in our banking and finance complaints to 53,000. Um, and particularly with our insurance um complaints as well, a significant increase there of over 50%. So these are some of the things we've been seeing. People in financial difficulty um, where they're not able to make repayments, whether that's on their mortgage or their credit card or their car loans, up to 5,000 complaints a year with a particular spike in the last three months. So we're concerned about that. And we know with interest rate rises, people were already struggling um, with the number of interest rate rises, but we understand rental increases as well are making it difficult for people to make ends meet. And that is coming out through our complaint statistics, whether that's because people are finding other ways to manage very tight budgets or find money from alternative sources. So credit card complaints were increased by 15% this year. Mm. And buy now, pay later products, mm. an alternative form of credit, as we know, and a very easy and accessible form of credit have really started to appear on our complaints. 57% more complaints about buy now, pay later this year than there were last year. I see. And then coming into this buy now, pay later issue that we wanted to discuss about. So we know this is obviously also one of the biggest increase. Uh, what what was the actual problem with it here? Why why was there so much of a complaint in, in regards to this? Yeah, Grace, it's a really interesting dilemma. <clears throat> As I said, we know people are managing tight budgets mm. and buy now, pay later products are easy and accessible to use, particularly when you only have one account and a one-off purchase. But unfortunately, what we're seeing is a trend and financial counsellors and consumer groups are noticing this as well, for buy now, pay later products to be used for essentials like food, like fuel, to pay power bills. They were never intended really as a way for ordinary Australians to pay everyday living expenses, but the ease of access means more people are resorting to it and there's not enough controls and regulation in place for buy now, pay later firms and companies to ensure that they are um, providing credit responsibly. So we support the federal mm -hmm. government's plan to regulate mm -hmm. buy now, pay later firms 
more effectively under the Consumer Credit Act. And we think it's very important for people to understand that um, if you have a buy now, lay pay um, buy now, pay later account, mm. there are some um, actions that you can take um, to make sure that you stay safe and that you stay on your top, top of your bills. So make sure that you understand um, how many accounts you'll be having with buy now, pay later. Mm. Try to understand the uh, repayments you will need to make as well in terms of each of those accounts. Make sure you understand your responsibilities to pay back and don't um, be caught out by interest and um, fees and penalties. Incorrect charges, service quality, um, issues to do with credit reporting when buy now, pay later um, products are not paid back are all feature in our service complaints as does scam activity, unauthorised transactions on our account. So just some things for people to look out for. Mm. And so now, Jimmy, you want to go a bit more into very detailed financial complications here with the delay in insurance claims. This was definitely one of the biggest highlights uh, you have mentioned to be- at the beginning about how it has the complaints have received about 50% as and as the claim delays continue. So why do you think this is happening and how long? And just for listeners to understand a bit more about delays in insurance claims, how long you see, how long is it usually meant to be? taken when claiming insurance yeah sure grace it's a it's really terrific that um, we have the opportunity to give australian consumers a little bit more information about this because it can be quite complex to understand the rights and responsibilities when you have a claim for insurance and in the past financial year um, as i said nearly twenty-eight thousand complaints about general insurance alone, which is a rise of 50% across the board. So, you know, a third of those complaints just about delay in general insurance. And when we talk about general insurance, we're talking about home and content insurance. We're talking about motor vehicle insurance Mm. as well. Mm. Look, we know that there have been a a series of natural disasters across last year and that including major floods. Um, in WA, New South Wales and Queensland and in Victoria as well. And that did mean an influx of claims at a time where there was a shortage of tradies and assessors coming out of COVID and real disruption to supply chains internationally with building materials and car parts um, because of the war in Ukraine and also because of COVID as well. So it was inevitable Mm -hmm. that there would be delays in insurers assessing claims and then restoring and repairing uh, whether that's damaged property or otherwise so so we get that mm-hmm. and and we acknowledge that but we started reporting on that 12 months ago and and mm-hmm. time has passed now and what we are calling on industry to do is to really step up we just want to see an improvement in the time it takes to assess a person's claim in the time it takes to let that person know that their claim has been accepted or denied and then the time it takes for the work to be done to fix the problem. Um, and delays really do leave people in limbo mm. and it means they cannot get on with their lives um, as they should be able to do. So that's one of the reasons we've spent a lot of time talking to insurers this year Mm. about these particular concerns. And while it isn't possible really to say 
how long should it take um, for my claim to be considered by an insurer and then acted on and give me a decision. There is a general insurance code of practice and that says that usually for the ordinary claim, an insurer's got about four months if they've got all the information to consider your claim, make a decision, and then 10 days from making that decision to let you know. If they can't do that, they should be communicating with you about the progress of your claim, about information they might need in order to assess it and, and why there are delays and when you can expect a decision. And if you're not getting that information from your insurer, then you should be asking questions about it. So my advice to anyone out there listening who may have an insurance claim is to say, make sure you stay in touch with your insurer and keep asking questions and keep raising concerns that you've got. Make sure even though um, insurance policies can be very difficult mm. um, they, um, and complex, read it. Make sure you understand what you're covered for and what you're not covered for um, and, and what you uh, will get uh, under the policy for your claim. And sometimes, Grace, mm. the cheapest policy is not the best policy for you. But mm. a little tip um, for your listeners, when I've had a claim and I flooded um, my upstairs um, apartment floor last year um, oh with an overrunning um, tap in my laundry, uh, take lots of photos immediately that something happens and there is damage to your property or videos and notes um, of what's happened and the conversations that you've had with your insurer. And I found personally that just allows me to not stress um, as much and to be confident that I have kept a record of how the claim is going and progressing. So just some just some tips from me. Uh, but I was just curious a bit because uh, personally, I've never really got to claim an insurance before, but I probably would have to in the future. If the delay is too long, if the delay takes too long and you get you have to go to the insurance to ask them, oh, why is it taking so long? Do you have to continuously uh, bug them for it or do you just have to wait for an email or a call from them? It's actually not on you or the consumer to actually do that. Mm. Insurers should be proactively communicating with their um, with their customers and they should be mm. keeping you up to date with where a claim is at, um, why it's taking so long and what timeframes they've now set for you to get a decision. So that should be on them. But mm. I always think that if you're not certain or if you're not getting an answer, then pick up the phone and have a conversation with your insurer. Um, and if you're not getting the answers that you uh, need or deserve, then um Ask them to escalate that to a complaint. And if you still can't resolve it, then AFCA as a free independent dispute resolution service is here for all Australian consumers to help them resolve their complaints against general insurers. In the next year, we anticipate that we will see many more complaints about uh, hardships. So people who are in mortgage arrears or who are unable to pay their credit cards and their buy now, pay later services, as I said. Uh, we can bring the consumer and the financial firm together to try to find a mutual agreeable solution. And 95% of the cases we manage, we do just that. There's only 5% of our cases that actually go through to 
formal decision by an ombudsman. I should say, Grace, then, in, in the context of scams, mm-hmm. over 6,000 scam-related complaints last year, nearly double what we had seen the year before. So we know that's the tip of the iceberg because the ACCC estimates scam losses at $3 billion in Australia last year. So as a, as a final note for your customers, every one of us mm. could be scammed at any time. Even a person like me in my job has had to be very vigilant about uh, issues like um, the text messages that I receive. If mm. I receive a text message and it asks me to click on a link, I don't. I always mm. stop and take my time before giving my money or personal information on the phone. I always think about an unsolicited phone call that I might receive from someone and I never give them information um, in, about my bank accounts or about any access codes that I might have received. So um, for your listeners, Grace, stop, think and protect yourself um, when you are dealing with Um, issues around your bank accounts and your money. Awesome. That's very helpful, June. Uh, Thank you so much, June. Thanks, Grace. I really appreciate your time and um, it was great to have a chat. And that was Grace speaking with the Australian Financial Complaint Authority's Deputy Chief Ombudsman, Dr June Smith, discussing the 97,000 complaints taken to the financial ombudsman and the complications and implications uh, with insurance claims. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast and we'll be back in a moment. Serrated tussock is an noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. It's coming up to Science Week again, and that can only mean one thing. Yes, it's the Lost in Science Trivia Night. Monday the 14th of August, 7pm at the Carring Bush Hotel in Abbotsford. Come early for dinner, bring a team, win prizes, show off your brains, and raise money for science on the radio. Send an email to book your table to lostinsci at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-I-N-S-C-I at gmail.com and we will sort you out for tickets. Lost in Science Trivia Night, Monday the 14th of August. Remember to tune in each Thursday at 8.30am for all your sciencey goodness. And uh, the Lost in Science Trivia Night is not the only thing happening at 3CR for Science Week next week. Um, 3CR Breakfast will be running a special broadcast for the whole week, uh, so from Monday the 14th right through till Friday. And every morning we are going to be 
covering a particular aspect of science, and that is AI, which seems to be in the news every second story that you read has something to do with artificial intelligence these days. So we thought that we would unpick some of those uh, knots and yeah, dive into uh, issues about transparency, regulation, and yeah, the pros and cons of machine uh, learning. So yeah, listen in next week. Um, we've got some great uh, guests lined up already, and uh, it'll be really interesting to to tease out some of the the nuances of the debates and yeah, focus on that uh, aspect for Science Week. We're going to go to a track now. This is the Black Tambourines with Monobar. And after that, Patrick will be speaking with Australian Federation of Deacon Association volunteer, Khalid Mohammed. That was the Black Tambourines with Monobar. 
And that was another track from the second volume of Music for Iran, a varied and vibrant charity compilation, which is raising money and awareness for political prisoners in Iran during the ongoing revolution for women's liberation and an end to gender apartheid. If you'd like to listen uh, to more of these tracks, you can head to the website WLF Music for Iran, all one word, .bandcamp.com and uh, take a listen. We're now going to head over to Patrick. Thank you, Claudia. Uh, I will now be speaking uh, to Khaled Mohammed, a volunteer at the DECA uh, Association, um, Australian Federation of DECA Association. Apologies. Uh, they are a group uh, which are from Hyderabad of the region of India, and just recently, India has had a shocking uh, uh, violent incidents between both the Muslim uh, minority and the Hindu majority. And Khalid's going to give us an idea of what the situation is, but also what their association is doing to help uh, those in need. So Khalid, good morning. Uh, good morning, Patrick. How are you? Very good, thank you. So Khalid, firstly, just give us an idea on the situation in India. You're from Hyderabad originally, and you moved to... Australia, give us an idea. You've been speaking to friends and family over there. What's been the, the, the situation? Um, look, Patrick, uh, it's really concerning. We are, um, uh, we are a group of uh, uh, Indian diasporas that live uh, in from southern um, India, um, work as, uh, working as Asia, where we do some social work and, uh, um, um, and engage with the community. But uh, this, um, but uh, it's very disheartening uh, to see the um, violence happening in India. The violence against minorities is like ongoing case these days. But the latest flare happened last week uh, when an Indian railway protection officer walked on the train coaches, killing three Muslims and his colleague. After that, he gave a hate speech, telling passengers to support Modi. So this is actually a, a police officer, railway protection police officer, supposed to protect passengers. He went on a rampage and asked to, and gave a hate speech, which is quite shocking. Um, then, then following that up, in northern India, new district, it is alleged that there was stone pelting by Muslims on Hindu religious rally. But visuals coming on social media and different places are completely shocking. Mm. Um, armed... Uh, Hindu Malaysians like Bajrangal, VHP are roaming on the road. Shops, um, shops and businesses are belonging mostly to Muslims, like burning. Uh, a mosque has been set on fire, killing a young, like 22 years uh, imam inside. Mm. Um, uh, like then following that up, the state BJP government, uh, the BJP is in rule in Haryana. Uh, BJP state government started a Muslim house demolition drive without following due legal process. In five days, they demolished around 500 properties. The situation calmed after five days when High Court intervened um, and asked the government to stop and label the demolition as ethnic cleansing. So this is very shocking itself. So the demolition went on for five days, and even Indian court coming and saying uh, it's labeling it as ethnic cleansing is very shocking and disheartening. No, and we are still in shock, like a house in this like we call it democracy and how mm. this thing happens without following the rule of law. So breaking of the rule of law is very concerning. 
Yes, yes, it is. And I, I did see those reports regarding to that. Uh, the High Court uh, said on Monday, uh, it was reported in Al Jazeera, the issue also arises whether the buildings belonging to a particular muning, uh, community are being brought under the guise of law and order problem and exercise of ethnic cleansing is being conducted by the state. So it's fascinating um, in that space, uh, Khalid, given the fact uh, we, um, we, we uh, you know, we welcomed uh, Narendra Modi uh, to uh, Australia only a few months ago, Khalid, and uh, it was a very big war welcomed by Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister. You, you know, are you concerned as your organisation of the situation? And you know, have you thought of um, you know seeking um, seeking um, uh, what's it called? The best way of putting it is, you know, have you have you asked the the government in Australia to kind of uh, lay down some um, you know uh, accountability to Narendra Modi and um, the BJP? Um, look, uh, we have been like uh, as a, as a, we are raising out our like local leaders, and we we are like uh, raising awareness. But when like the Prime Minister Modi visited, like uh, there are some um, uh, few incidents I like to highlight, like Elaine Person, Asia Director at uh, Human Rights Watch, um, uh, in an article, the interpreter made a compelling case for Australian leaders to raise human rights concern with Indian Prime Minister during his visit to uh, Australia. Pearson cited shrinking civic space in India, a crackdown on free speech and discrimination and violence against uh, minorities and Christians as key concerns. But regrettably, this is not a got raised up. Um, um, I think it's in interest of Australia strategic foreign policy to speak up on issues of human rights in India in order to forge a resilient bilateral relationship. Um, So I think silence at this growth phase of the relationship could undermine its long-term success. Um, Like, we have to remember, Modi won't be Prime Minister forever, Mm. and Australia needs to invest in an enduring relationship with India, and that includes 63% 63% of voters who did not support Modi in 2019 election. So there is a support there, but not all the Indian support like uh, the policies of uh, uh, polarization and putting communities against each other. Um, we, we have lived together for centuries in India, mm. like different communities, different uh, um, people with different beliefs. Uh, this is from last 10 years. This is going down that road, but I think, but um, in the long term, it's in interest of Australia and India to to forge relationships based on rule of law and human rights protection. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. Clearly, uh, India is a one of the world's you know most interesting countries and fascinating places to go to. It has multiple cultures, different languages. Uh, you know, for example, uh, I always refer back to sport, Khalid, But um, I, I hear that there's about forty different channels uh, just to watch the just to watch the IPL or watch the cricket. You know, in different languages, and that's the great thing about India. And it's so sad to see um, this situation going on uh, between Hindus and Muslims because. Uh, I think, I think, as someone living in Australia, if this if this was occurring here, it'd be, it'd be a national disgrace, and to see the situation happening uh, to uh, the Muslims as well as uh, Hindus as well. And are you concerned by the rhetoric of both sides? You know, are you concerned that there's been uh, the situation of um, you know uh, Muslims attacking Hindus in that space as well? They're fellow citizens. Last minute, I checked. Yeah, look, we, we, we condemn all incidents of violence. So, we so as, as like, uh, we, we have people, like, we are engaged with people there. But, uh, but it, I think 
in this day and time, it's not like uh, on arms length anymore. At one time, you have like uh, the government and then the groups are uh, um, like uh, some groups like um, hot or uh, or it's um, it's a coming from um, media and far right groups are far worse, and they're open open call to violence and genocide and murder and this uh, this. People, a government is turning a blind eye. Mm. Um, it is important to recognize that various religious groups have we have existed peacefully for centuries. This is something new. Um, so this this call to violence are made an economic boycott, especially like uh, groups like Bajran Dal, DHC. They are uh, putting a religious gathering and taking oath, um, asking people to take an oath to boycott Muslims economically and and slaughter uh, like do a genocide against Muslims and so it it makes you very fearful. But we, on the contrary, we have not seen any call to violence from the minority side. Um, it is so it's not like equal playing field. There's no like rhetoric is mostly from far right groups putting open calls for violence. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's fascinating on that space as well, clearly, in terms of what what could happen in the future. Are you, as someone who's living in Australia, are you fearful? Are you fearful of India's democracy? It seems, uh, it seems every day we hear reports of you know the the closing of media in India and independent journalists not being able to investigate into, uh, you know, corrupt corrupt dealings which have seen with state leaders uh, across across India and also. Um, uh, you know Modi's own activities regarding you know uh, humans right, humans right records and and the likes on minorities. Do you do you feel that um, the the once large democracy is slowly uh, turning authoritarian? Um, yes, it's. Uh, I think the agenda is there. Um, uh, the message to make is now the press freedom in India. We call it the world's largest democracy, is 160 out of uh, 180. So we are really the bottom where, the, where we exercise free media. Uh, but like, yeah, it's concerning. Uh, we, I was in India for almost six months. But uh, but the case where northern India, the different southern India is quite peaceful. Uh, like in uh, the Hyderabad, Telangana, it's my secular government. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, it's so it's. Uh, I think uh, some parts of India are progressing really well, and there is a um, the, the, the state governments are holding uh, secular values quite well. Like where mm. I come from, Telangana, so it's very a model state, you can say. So they're holding like secular values, and there is uh, the agenda is on development in human development, and now without much biases. But uh, but uh, sadly, northern India is going opposite approach. They are following policies of uh, polarization, and like um, uh, it's, it's very concerning and it's very disheartening to see. But I think I think in longer term, India, like uh, especially in Karnataka, uh, um, there was a state election happened like few months back in mm. Karnataka where uh, where BJP.
Congress at the end won, and the politics of hate and division uh, got defeated. So it's it's sort of interesting. It's not like all gloomy. So there is a hope. It will it will return its secular and um, and developing agenda. Mm, yes, it's going to be an interesting space, Khalid, in terms of what will happen in the future as well. Just so listeners can know, Khalid, before I let you go, where can they go to um, help with your organisation? Um, at, the, at the moment, this is more like uh, this is we we watching it closely. It's more like a law and order issue. So in our as organisation, we are actively uh, supporting. If there is a natural disaster where there is a flood, where we, we can provide something. But this is like uh, this is more of a law and order issue. We watching closely, and we are, we are looking to help. But the scale of it is really shocking to us, and so many houses got demolished, and it's it's, it's, uh, it's I think uh, we, we urge the government to take due care and look after. And uh, it's it's okay if you if you punish someone who did crime, but if you do, if you uh, believe in collective punishment, the families and all people, uh, if you're punishing them, uh, taking away their houses, it's very disheartening. But uh, as an organization, uh, we are urged um, Indian government, human rights, just to protect the human rights that we are uh, putting our efforts in. Yes, very much for sure. Human rights is key and essential to that one. Well, thanks very much, Khalid, for being on 3CR Breakfast this morning. Um, have Thank a lovely day. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you for your time. And that was Khalid Mohammed from the Deccan Association of Australia. It was a very interesting chat there, Claudia. It's it's a it's an ongoing issue in India, as we know, religious violence. It's, it's quite sad and uh, quite disheartening to see the largest democracy have this issue uh, reoccurring. Yeah, absolutely. Many layers oh, there, yeah. but great to to hear that local perspective. And um, yeah, there's lots we could say oh, about yeah. that. We've I got, think we, we got more. We could, if we, had, uh, if we had more time, we could a, dwell have a whole it. show yes. unpacking the complexity there. Um, but very uh, very important for the communities involved. I think we've got time for one more track before we. Uh, finish up today it's been a very eclectic show uh, we've gone from Japan to India to the financial ombudsman and price gouging and the Australian unions so yeah we've had a, a real mix this morning and as we said next week we'll be bringing you a special uh, delving into AI so please stay tuned uh, for that one uh, that'll be a, a really interesting uh, deep dive into the the world of uh, machines and uh, the future so we're going to go out with a final track from Music for Iran. This is Shangrilas Dragonfly.
3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.